0: But you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So, thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's gonna support. We appreciate it.
1: The definition of kidnapping is moving someone from one point to another point against their will, and that's exactly what had happened to us. We were now captives, held hostage officially by the FARC. This is Ben Stokesberry. But that was, to me, it wasn't the most noteworthy part of that day. The most noteworthy part of the day is that for the first time in the entire trip, we were actually all working together as a team, and we were all spending an entire day together. Did that go through your head
2: at the time? Absolutely. Yeah. Here's Chris Korbuluk. Going into a place that's been so politically isolated was the big risk, and it just didn't work out for us. Or maybe it did. Maybe what happened was the best way that that trip could have ended.
1: I really can't help but feel like they in some ways helped us put a stop to the madness and end our trip and leave that place <laughs> as opposed to like something really bad happening. Ben
0: and Chris are the expedition kayakers. The pair has established over 120 first descents in the most wild, most remote and dangerous corners of the globe. The two of them have what is perhaps the longest running, most successful partnership, not just in kayaking, but in the world of outdoor adventure. They've been at this together for more than a decade now. And yet, in April 2017, the two boaters wound up on an expedition on which the interpersonal dynamics grew so strained that being held hostage by an armed rebel group in the remote Colombian Amazon didn't necessarily seem like the worst thing that could have happened. Jen, how did you learn about this story?
3: Well... I've known Ben and Chris for a few years now. We've worked on other stories together. A couple of years ago, we did a diaries episode on a trip they took to Myanmar. And so last summer, I get a call from Ben, and he tells me that he might have a story for us.
0: <laughs> I Right. I remember that com- uh, overhearing that phone call. It was like something like, hey, Ben, how you doing? I heard you got kidnapped by the FARC, but it sounds like you're okay. What's going on? I, I love it when we get to overhear things like that on the Dirtbag Diaries in the office here. Yeah.
3: Right. So Ben's like, oh yeah, at that point in time, getting kidnapped was probably the best thing that could have happened to us. And Ben's upset, but he's not upset because of the kidnapping or because their trip got cut short. He's upset because he and Chris haven't talked to each other since they got back from Columbia.
0: Right. Ooh.
3: And... He has no idea why Chris is upset.
0: So things went wrong is basically what you're saying, but not in the way the rest of the community thought. Man, from the outside, it it always seems like their friendship must be as solid as a rock because they just spend so much time, a lot of time together, doing very, very difficult and dangerous things.
3: It does seem that way. But interpersonal conflict, it happens out there. It's just something that doesn't tend to make it into the glossy trip reports or the brand stories that get released. People don't usually talk about that stuff with anyone other than their closest friends.
0: Yeah, and usually when that stuff happens, people just don't go on another trip together. They say, like, that's enough, and they never see that person again in that kind of setting.
3: Right, but what happens when the things you want to accomplish in life, the goals you have are best accomplished with this person you're struggling to communicate with?
0: So today, we present Elephant in the Boat. A two part story about friendship, communication, the edges of our world, and a trip that went really wrong for not the obvious reasons. Part one we're going to take you down the Apopouries River, one of the most wild places in the world, a place to remain wild because a 50 year old armed conflict kept everyone else out. It's the kind of place where you need to be dialed,
3: where you need to have total faith in your team, your partners.
0: But what if you don't? I'm Fitzgahal.
3: I'm Jen Alchell.
0: And you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
1: thinking about this river since my first trip to Colombia in 2003.
3: Ben met up with Colombian kayaker Mauricio Arredondo. They unfurled the big map of the country on the table, and Mauricio pointed to one river.
1: The one that he specifically pointed out was the Apaporis, and it was a river that exists in the collective consciousness of Colombians as the most wild place in Colombia, the most far out there, the most roadless place, a place that really exemplifies the Colombian Amazon in terms of this huge, uncut rainforest.
3: Despite its stature in the minds of Colombians, it's a difficult river to explore. The Apopores has this dichotomy of character. Most of it runs flat, almost motionless, for hundreds of miles. But deep in the remote Amazon, the river passes through mountain ranges, punctuated by big whitewater rapids and waterfalls. To run the whole river would require solid whitewater skills and the willingness to slog through weeks of flat water.
1: He's like, someday you should try to run this river. Not today, because at that point, that was really the bullseye of this civil war going on with the FARC.
3: In Colombia, the early 2000s were not a good time to venture off the beaten path. To understand why, we have to get into an abbreviated history of Colombia beginning in 1964 with the rise of the FARC the Armed Wing of the Communist Party, an acronym for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. It was founded by small farmers and land workers to oppose the horrendous levels of class inequality in the country. As the FARC grew, right-wing paramilitary groups sprung up to oppose them. By the early 2000s, the FARC had enlisted an estimated 20,000 guerrilla fighters, and the country was at the height of the civil war between the far-left guerrilla groups, the paramilitaries, and the Colombian government. At the same time, the country supplied as much as 90% of the world's cocaine. Pablo Escobar, the head of the infamous Medellín cartel, was assassinated in 93, and the major cartels fell within a couple years. But that did not mean the end of Colombian cocaine. When the cartels fell, both the FARC and the paramilitaries grew heavily involved in narcotics trafficking. Kidnapping was the other primary source of income for the FARC. Between 1970 and 2010, guerrilla groups in Colombia kidnapped an estimated 25,000 people to gain leverage or money. There was a brief ceasefire in 2001 and early 2002, but by mid-2002, the fighting had resumed, and most of the fighting took place in rural Colombia, the places where Ben would want to go. Ben made four trips to explore Colombian rivers between 2003 and 2007. He was fascinated by the country but the places he could visit somewhat safely were limited. Even those trips came with substantial risk.
1: It's definitely a game of Russian roulette. It just got to the point where I lost that initial desire to push the boundaries in Colombia.
3: So Ben turned his attention elsewhere, until in 2012, the FARC came back to the negotiating table and signed a peace treaty to end the 50-year-running civil war for good.
1: So, all of a sudden, <laughs> that name popped back in my head, the Apropois.
3: First, Ben connected with Jules Domini, a French kayaker based out of Colombia who owned and operated a whitewater rafting company in Medellin. They met for the first time in November and made plans to launch the trip that spring, just a few months later. They wanted to put in at the beginning of the rainy season, before the water levels crept uncomfortably high, but after the first rains had drowned out the worst of the bugs.
1: When you talk about bugs, you talk about mosquitoes, it's kind of a nuisance, but there, I mean, you really have to pay attention to that sort of thing. Leishmaniasis is no joke.
3: Leish is a flesh-eating parasite.
1: Out on top of that, malaria and yellow fever and dengue and all those other mosquito-borne illnesses that you definitely don't want to get in the middle of nowhere.
3: Initially, Ben and Jules intended to keep the trip small. They didn't know the reality of the political situation in that remote part of the Amazon. As a team of two, they could move fast and attract less attention
2: and then ben told me about it and i was really excited about the idea didn't know if it would be appropriate for me to go but just said hey if it is i would love to be a part
1: of that
3: so chris was in then ben spoke to Jessie rice an old friend who had just separated from her husband
1: she was just like i want to go this sounds like the best you think i could go and i just thought to myself why not
3: the last paddler to join the team was Jule's friend, extreme kayaking world champion Yolo Serosos, who saw 700 miles of flat water as a way to rehab from a recent shoulder surgery.
1: Just to put this into perspective, this river drops 700 feet in 700 miles. I don't even know if your skateboard will roll down the street if your street is dropping one foot over a mile.
3: From the satellite images, they knew that a couple of major rapids and waterfalls would account for most of that 700 feet.
1: If you're not a boater, you can think about it in terms of the difference of climbing El Capitan and hiking the PCT. It's not your standard trip that whitewater kayakers are going to get real enthusiastic about.
3: But there they were, with five whitewater kayakers, all excited about this remote, flat river.
1: It seemed like five was a good number. It's a big river. It seemed like there was plenty of room for all of us.
3: One by one, the team landed in Colombia. Once everyone had arrived in Medellin, the five kayakers celebrated with their first paddle as a team on a river just outside of town.
1: Classic jewels. he wants to take us down like 40 miles of river in the first day. Jesse and I bail out at a takeout bridge before the three boys continue down and paddle another class five Big Water Gorge towards the end of the river. So even on our training day paddling, there was this split in the group, this obvious split between the three super-fired-up younger guys, and then Jesse and myself.
3: After that first paddle, the team had to direct their attention toward last-minute logistics. Ben spent a week flying around the country trying to track down their kayaks. Meanwhile, a difference in personality and worldviews came to the surface between Chris and Jesse.
2: What I thought her goal was was to go on this spiritual journey into the Amazon and to come out a different person, I can totally understand. But I also know that that doesn't happen, really. You go on a trip and it can certainly change your perspective, but it doesn't change the facts of your life. She's going to come out 30 days later and be met with the same pieces of mail and the same messages on her phone and same obligations.
3: In truth, each member of the team signed on for their own reasons. The expedition lacked a single unified objective.
2: And it's usually really clear. It's usually to go to this place, go down a river, run as much of it as possible, and Survive.
3: This trip was different. Jesse wanted an escape and a transformation. Ben had hit a transition point. He knew he wanted to continue to kayak professionally, but had grown more interested in using his kayak as a vehicle for human-powered exploration, not a way to send gnarly first descents. He even fantasized that at the end of the month, he would just resupply and paddle on to the Amazon River proper in Brazil. For Chris and Julie, the kayak seemed almost incidental. Chris wanted to explore this remote, magical part of the jungle. Jules wanted to continue to deepen his connection to and understanding of Colombia. Aniel, he really just wanted to rehab his shoulder. And actually, it wasn't clear how psyched he was to go at all. Three days before his flight left for Columbia, he sent an email to say that he had changed his mind and found a friend to take his spot. The rest of the team talked him out of bailing. And really, none of those goals were mutually exclusive. But, like in any group project, when you establish a single overarching objective, it fosters a sense of shared purpose and streamlines decisions as they arise. The Apoporis team, they never came up with that shared vision, and with time, the way distinct goals tugged in different directions deepened the schisms that had already formed. And then, as all of that started to come to light, Jesse got sick, really sick just seven days before their departure date. She's got a
1: horrendous fever, intestinal issues, nausea. On top of that, she can't even walk well because her bones are aching so bad. I mean, it's as sick as I've personally seen someone get.
3: Ben moved Jesse to Mauricio's apartment in Medellin, a clean, quiet place more conducive to her recovery than the center of operations for Julie's Rafting Company where the five of them had set up camp. And when Jesse moved, Ben went with her.
1: I guess the other element that's sort of an elephant in the room is that Jesse and I had been, um, we started hanging out. (laughs) That side of it absolutely led to an even further fracturing of the group, I think.
3: A day before the team would start the drive, Ben finally managed to drag Jesse to the hospital. They ran tests for dengue, malaria, chikungunya, for all of the bug-borne illnesses they had tests for. Every one came back negative.
1: And I'm still thinking to myself, well, blood tests can come up negative, and it doesn't mean that you don't have him.
3: But the doctor assured him that the blood tests were accurate. People just get tropical viruses there. And his best guess was that in a few days, Jesse would just start to feel better. And over the course of that day in the hospital, she did start to feel better, substantially better. So the night before they were set to leave, the team sat down to make a decision.
2: You know, I totally appreciate and understand your thoughts, but, you know, health is such a huge thing, and we can make really good decisions before we get there. And you know, like maybe three days in, I'm gonna get fucking sick and be fucked. And like that would be terribly ironic and awful. <laughs> but we can mitigate the risks of that happening just by starting healthy.
3: Chris and Anjol made it clear that they didn't even think she should get in the car.
2: Like, that's a really simple decision that no, Jesse cannot come on the trip if she is this sick. And it wouldn't have been any different if it was me or Jules or Like, If any of us couldn't get out of bed four days before we're supposed to leave, you're probably not going to go on the trip.
3: Ben, having spoken to the doctor, thought that she should get in the car, see how she felt over the few days it would take to get to the pudding.
1: I think, like, go down there, get to the put-in, and make, like, a real conscious decision. And uh, I've obviously been the one closest to Jessie's situation, and I told her on the way here that I certainly wasn't comfortable with the way that she is right now, putting on the river. But at the same time, with the tests we went through today and the 12 hours of due diligence and the fact that all of those tests came up negative.
3: So it came down to Jules for the tie-breaking vote.
1: And he just said, these places, it's more about where your mindset is. And if she can get out of the van on the other side, load up her boat, and start paddling, then it's really up to her, isn't it? Why don't we just, like, go there, you know? And then at the beginning, we can make a democratic fucking vote on, you know, like if we all feel comfortable with what's going to happen. I'm super sorry to say it like that, but it kind of comes down to whether we agree or not on new coming and we can just keep it to a democratic vote. What do you guys think? And so that's how she got in the car with at least two guys on the team not real happy that she was coming along and Jesse feeling absolutely like she was meant to do this river.
3: It took 36 hours to drive the bumpy two-lane road that winds through three separate cordilleras of the Andes before it reaches San Vicente de Caguán, the former FARC stronghold and the last major village they would pass on their way to the put-in. Jessie unloaded her own boat, and she still didn't have a fever when they checked into a hotel for the night. Then, 40 minutes after they got to their room, Ben got a knock on his door.
1: Chris is there, and... He wants to have a chat with me. So we walk out to the edge of town next to the river and sit down, have a beer. And he tells me that he's not at all excited about having Jesse on the trip, that he has a personality conflict with her and he doesn't feel like she's healing in the way that I see it. Sure, there's no class five we were going to run, but because it
2: was such a long exposed and politically isolated route it seemed like we needed an even stronger team
1: I heard where they were coming from you know they weren't just trying to be mean once we took the next step any way of bailing out of the trip or trying to like Rally from a mistake at that point was going to be life-threatening. There's no
2: portaging around mosquito-borne diseases or FARC
1: rebel groups. And he is speaking to me personally about trying to make sure that she doesn't go. And um, that's when I start drinking pretty heavily.
3: <laughs> in Ben's mind, the boys had laid out clear criteria Jesse would have to meet in order to join the team at the put-in. She had to unload her own boat. She couldn't have any fever or any other symptoms. Saying she couldn't come now felt like going back on their word. As
1: night fell, the whole group assembled outside of our hotel room, and all of a sudden, Jules was saying, you know, bro, I think it's best that she doesn't go, and Annual was like, there's no way, man. You guys are hooking up, and this is going to be a total nightmare. Jesse was in tears. The boys were obviously not happy, and um, I was pretty drunk and pretty unhappy myself. I was just like, well, you know what, guys? The only thing I can tell you is that the three of you should go alone. Jesse and I will figure out something. Like, I'm just, I'm not gonna leave her behind at this point. And to me, that's when the
2: first hostage situation
1: occurred. And so it was just absolutely if not the worst possible way to start a trip. Definitely one of those really bad ways to start a trip. <laughs> Next morning, I'm up first thing five in the morning nasty hangover. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, nothing really got settled.
3: But when the time came, without any further discussion, all five kayakers loaded up in the vehicle that would transport them the final three hours to the put-in at the small town of Latunia.
2: When Ben gave that ultimatum saying that if she doesn't go, he wouldn't go, we were just like, okay, we're all gonna go, and we're gonna make it as good as we can.
3: So why? What made you kind of go with them anyway?
2: I didn't want to start the trip with Jessie in the first place because of her health. But I didn't want her to go do something in the super remote place with less of a safety net. Thinking of anything going wrong with just the two of them and not being able to deal with it It was not a decision that I wanted
1: to be a part of.
3: The team arrived in Latunia at 4 p.m. that afternoon.
1: It's a village that's like something out of an old spaghetti western. Adobe wood houses a tumbleweed rolling by, but it's not dry. It's a little rain rolling in, a little distant thunder, and a place that looks like it was like an old sheriff's office that has the big FARC emblem on the side i think we
2: actually drove by where a major part of the peace agreement had been signed we were in
1: heartland FARC territory and there was nobody there and it absolutely falls right into the narrative that we've created which is the peace process is working the FARC have abandoned their posts.
3: The following morning, it rained. Chris, Jules, and Anuel lowered their boats into the water to the sound of thunder and paddled out ahead. Ben and Jesse followed.
1: Mm. We don't see him again for, for six hours.
3: They caught up to them at the spot they had decided to pitch their hammocks for the night. The next morning, while Ben and Jesse cooked breakfast, the boys broke camp and paddled off. And that's how the team continued down the apopores. As two separate groups, divided by up to half a day's worth of paddling. Some days, Ben and Jesse would catch up to the boys when they stopped for lunch. Others, they wouldn't see each other until the evening. And when they did meet up, it wasn't exactly fun.
1: None of the boys would talk to Jesse, really. They would talk to me a little bit, but still, it was like, it didn't seem like they wanted to have much to do with us.
3: Ben and Chris didn't ever talk about any of that. Actually, after their drunken conversation outside the hotel, they didn't talk about the situation at all. And for Chris, for the most part, that worked fine.
2: It was a fantastic experience. I loved
3: it. He got along well with Jules and Anuel, but found that after the first few days, they often paddled with a little distance between them anyway.
2: There was tons of paddling, just so much paddling, 10, 12 hours a day. You can't have 20 days of 12-hour conversations. (laughs) So a lot of time alone and in your head, which actually is great in a lot of ways.
3: Ben and Jesse also found that they got along and traveled well together. But the tension between the two fragments and particularly between he and Chris, weighed more heavily on Ben.
1: I think the only real comfortable times are when we lose sight of each other, which would have been unthinkable on any of my other expeditions.
3: Had you ever felt this way with Chris before? Like, have you ever had things go that awry between the two of you on a trip?
1: No, never. I mean... Sure, we'd had a couple disagreements along the way, absolutely. But it was always something that we were doing together. And in this case, it was like, I felt like he had kind of abandoned me for a couple of other guys. You know, not just other guys, definitely some of the most talented members of our kayaking community, but some guys that he didn't really know thunder and those showers and the nice cool temperatures that we put on with gave way to a sun that was just ferocious. The flies come in and the bees and my boat was just so uncomfortably packed with all my gear and food for the next 30 days and it was then that I began to realize what we were up against.
3: In the evenings, the struggle to hack out a spot to hang a hammock began and the rains ground out any hope of a hot meal. But as the days went by, the paddlers acclimatized, and the jungle began to work its magic.
1: There were so many different colors of bees that would come out and land on you. And at first, you're like, oh, shit!" these bees were like the size of marbles, if not of golf balls, like huge, huge bees. But then realizing that all they wanted to do was like lick the salt off your skin. The buzzing wasn't something that was attacking you, but it was something that was almost friendly. There was a big shift in my mind of how I started to get comfortable with the river.
3: To both Ben and Chris, this place, it felt different.
1: This conflict had not only kept kayakers out, but had kept industry out. And it kept hydroelectrics out and deforestation and mining and... Those things don't happen in the midst of a civil war. And so what we were seeing in the middle of the Apoporis was this tremendous wilderness that had been protected by this horrific conflict. And I've been in jungles, but this, something about this place, the only way that I can really nail it down is finally at night once we gotten into the hammocks. When it wasn't raining, the sound of the jungle was just so much more intense and beautiful and psychedelic than anything that I could have ever imagined.
3: A weekend, they paddled up to National Park.
1: The first peaks emerge from the top of the canopy. All of a sudden, there's a rocky cliff way out in the distance, and its it feels like you're floating into Narnia or some other land where everything is just immaculate, untouched, just seems like the most wild, the most untouched, untrammeled place I've ever seen in my life. Paddling in there
2: is almost enough to go do the whole trip.
3: At nearly 7 million acres, Chiribiquete is the largest national park in Colombia, and almost completely inaccessible. Tourists can only see it via scenic flights over the sprawling expanse of pristine jungle, rivers, and the Chiribiquete Mountains, flat-topped table mountains that rise out of stunning vertical cliffs
2: walking up from the river to Turbikete Peak and just thinking that we were on flat ground and getting to the edge of one of these chasms and seeing the other block of rock 15, 20 feet away, but with a massive drop between and just pure vertical walls and walking down in these places the walls had broken down and created these giant stunning amphitheaters of forest and light and springs and it was magical it was a different world like one of the coolest places I've ever been.
3: They had been told that on their 15th day on the river, they would find a tributary that flowed into the upper If they paddled upstream, they would come to a farm where they could purchase more food. They still operated, in essence, as two independent groups who shared a campsite each night. But by that point, they had found a rhythm, and the tension had begun to subside. On the day they would intersect the tributary, they stopped together for lunch, studied the map, and agreed to regroup at the turnoff. That afternoon, for the first time on the trip, Jessie peeled out in front, and in her enthusiasm before anyone could catch up to her, she blew past the tributary. And after two weeks of trying to hold it together, Ben lost it.
1: In that moment when I had finally started to feel like the group was coming together, and all of a sudden, the group blows up again, and I blew up.
3: Ben and the three boys met at the base of the tributary and came up with a new plan. Chris, Jules, and Anuel would paddle up to the resupply point and pick up food for all of them. Ben would catch up with Jesse, find somewhere to set up camp, and wait for them to return. It took over five hours for the boys to fight their way against the stiff current and arrive at a small coca farm. They bought food, shared stories with the kind family, and found themselves surprised to discover the disconnect between the farmers and the drug their crops produce.
2: A lot of those guys working on those farms don't even know what it turns into here.
3: They seem shocked to learn of the drug use problems in the Western world. Out there, they look at the plant so differently.
2: Other substances, much less processed, are used a lot by indigenous peoples. It's part of ceremonies and rituals, and in some ways, it's part of daily life, but it's a revered substance. Recreational drug use is not a concept.
3: In the two days it took for the boys to paddle up the tributary and back, Ben and Jesse found a sandy beach to set up their hammocks, the first one of the trip. And Ben had a chance to explode and pull it back together.
1: I just like completely blew a fuse at Jesse And I'm sure a lot of that stress and a lot of that emotion was meant for somewhere else. But in that moment, I needed to break down. I needed to shed some tears myself. I was lucky that Jessie was there to like allow me to do that without freaking out herself. And luckily, I had two days just to like hit rock bottom and recover.
3: When the team did eventually reconvene, Ben was relieved to find that Jesse's mistake seemed to have upset him more than anyone else.
1: Nothing had gotten worse. Maybe even it had gotten better, like I needed to break down. It was actually, somehow it was actually a little better after that.
3: The next 200 miles or so of the river is completely flat. And as a result, it's the section with the most villages strung out along it. The kayakers paddled up to the first small village just a couple hours after they regrouped, and it was there that they heard the first rumors of an armed park group controlling traffic downriver. At the end of the 200-mile stretch of Flatwater, the river passes by Picoa Buenos Aires, an indigenous community of about 200 people with a small airstrip. Anuel had had his fill at Flatwater and planned to try to coordinate a flight out. So when, that day, the team encountered their first motorboat, Anuel jumped at the opportunity for a lift on the boat, which was carrying a medical mission downstream. Julius was quick to follow, since his real goal had always been to connect with the people in that remote part of the country. Then, the boat motored off, and without a word from his teammates, Chris watched it fade into the distance. Eventually, Ben and Jesse caught up to him, and the three of them paddled together for the next two and a half days.
1: Those were my favorite three days of the entire trip, when it was just the three of us. This group of five, although I think populated by good people, was completely unruly and shitty as a group. And I was hopeful at that point that it was really just about a really poorly put together team, as opposed to any single one of us being in the wrong or having a bad personality.
3: A couple of days later, the group reconvened. The motorboat had dropped and Anyol off upstream of Picoa Buenos Aires. Chris Ben, and Jesse caught up to them, and the team continued to paddle the final stretch of highly populated flat water.
1: Lots of indigenous dugout canoes with whole families paddling. Nobody has motorboats again. The only motorboat we've seen was a medical mission. And it feels like you're in a storybook, really. Because I've never been on a river that big where there's no motorboats anywhere. <laughs> it's like being able to go back in
3: time somehow. An hour outside of Picoa Buenos Aires, Ben stopped to refill his water, and the group split again. And that's when a new kind of trouble began.
2: Saw a motorboat pulled up into a very nondescript and dark little spot on the bank, and noticed it too late to stop talking.
3: The boat caught up to Chris and Aniol first.
2: They look like... The rebel army in Hollywood movies. Scars and missing fingers and had their faces covered and were carrying automatic rifles and just sinister looking.
3: The situation de-escalated as Anuel explained to the leader what they were doing there. While they talked, the other members of the group began to search their boats And the camping and camera gear they found helped corroborate their story.
2: Pretty soon they had their masks off and their guns were down and we were all sitting around. I shared some food with them and everything was taken down like 10 steps. They looked through all of our bags. I had Colombian cash stashed in a few different places, and they pulled it all out. And he just pulled one of the biggest bills out and said that he'd never seen one before, and then put it back in the envelope with 50 of those bills and handed it back to me.
3: The band gave the paddlers permission to continue on to the village and motored off to find Ben and Jesse. The boat caught up to the two of them an hour up the tributary to Picoa Buenos Aires.
1: And there's a woman sitting in the front and a couple guys in the back. And then as they come closer, I see the camouflage. They're carrying automatic weapons and they're coming right at us. And this was obviously an element of the group that had not put down their weapons. These are the last members of the FARC that you really want to meet. Especially in a place like that, where it was pretty obvious that they were the ones in in charge. The military or whoever it was that were charged with protecting tourists, they were not there. And the FARC was right in front of us. The female in the boat was obviously in charge. She wanted to know if if I knew who they were, and told me then that they were the Ejercito del Pueblo, the Army of the Village, which is the tagline for the FARC.
3: The rebels told Ben to get out of his boat, That they were controlling traffic on the river, and they needed to understand who he and Jesse were and why they were there. Jesse had been a little behind Ben on the river, so she paddled up about 15 minutes into the encounter.
1: The way that she approached the situation was much less formal and much friendlier than the way that I was approaching the situation. Asked them if they wanted to see her roll or kayak. There's some pretty good reaction from that, and I can only think that it helped.
3: Ben and Jesse had a similar experience to the boys. Initially, they felt threatened, but quickly, the situation diffused.
1: There was never any weapons pointed at me. There really wasn't anything too menacing about it other than the fact that All of my possessions in the world at that point were in their possession and were being thoroughly searched.
3: Ben, like Chris, figured at the very least the FARC would take his cash and probably some other valuables. But again, after their search, they repacked his boat and told he and Jesse they could proceed to the village. They would catch up with them there. As promised, that night... The FARC found the five kayakers in the community house, for the villagers had allowed them to pitch camp. Just two miles downstream, the half-mile-wide Apopores crashes 150 feet over a sheer cliff in the most spectacular waterfall on the river, something the team had looked forward to since they picked it out on the satellite imagery. The FARC told the paddlers that they needed to relay their names and information to their higher-ups and wait for instructions on how to proceed. But in the meantime they had permission to paddle as far as the waterfall. The next morning, Anjola stayed in town, determined to catch a flight home. The other four kayakers moved camp to the falls.
2: It's another magical, stunning place. There just aren't very many waterfalls like that that you can stand right next to without hundreds of other people on a sidewalk and tour buses. So it was a very cool place to even just spend one night with our hammock slung up in the vines.
1: Went to bed that night in this big, huge rock amphitheater that was just reverberating with the sound of a river twice or three times the size of the Colorado, falling 150 feet over this big ledge in the middle of the Amazon. Definitely one of the most memorable nights of the whole trip. And it also became really memorable because of the next morning when, just as I was getting up at about 6.30 in the morning, all of a sudden we see a couple of the guys that we had seen the night before.
3: The FARC told the kayakers that they already had Anjol in custody, and the rest of the group would have to go with them. The four of them tried briefly to object, but it became apparent that this was one of those easy way or hard way situations. The paddlers took another look at the automatic weapons and decided they would just do what they were told.
1: We were now captives, held hostage officially by the FARC. But that was, to me, it wasn't the most noteworthy part of that day, the most noteworthy part of the day is that for the first time in the entire trip we weren't working against each other, on the contrary, we were all working together to try to make the best of a pretty frightening situation.
3: The most surprising part of the whole encounter is just how much emphasis both Ben and Chris place on the level of hospitality with which they were treated by this rogue band of one of the most feared rebel armies in the world. They felt well cared for, much more like guests than prisoners.
1: Our encounter with the FARC was just as amicable as so many of our other encounters with locals along the banks of the river. Now, those other locals didn't kidnap us, but that aside, they were giving us food, they made us feel welcome, there was no menacing or threatening gestures or commentary in any way. The days that we spent in their camp
2: were probably the most comfortable hostage in the jungle situation that you could have. (laughs) You know, bringing us coffee in the morning, Inviting us to go walk around in
1: the forest, go hunting.
3: The FARC band introduced them to their pet.
1: It looks like a beaver almost, but it's a huge rodent. It's a huge, kind of cuddly-looking bucktooth rodent. They had a pet, one of those. They called it a guagua.
3: The leader did continue to question them, but the interviews didn't feel like a threat.
2: They wanted to know if we were involved in resource extraction in any way, or if we were connected to the military, any military, and I think it was pretty easy for them to trust us that we weren't.
3: And the FARC band tried hard to explain their struggle, and the team found themselves surprised to discover that they shared common values.
2: I could relate to their causes so easily in their fight against corporate and industrial takeover of a country and environmental plunder and military force. So many people here fight against the same things. I don't agree with the means that they have taken, but it was easy to relate to their causes and the things that they appreciate and hold dear.
1: When you think about the multinationals, that certainly have a pretty ugly history of taking advantage of poor workers in Latin America, from the banana industry to the coffee industry.
3: They have a point. The FARC leader assured the kayakers that they would detain them for no more than three days. They just needed more time to wait for instructions. They made clear that their captives were to turn off all electronic devices and avoid any communication with the outside world. But Ben did manage to get a satellite message to a friend in the States and to Mauricio in Medellin to let them know what had happened.
1: And my comment to both of them was, if you don't hear from me in 24 hours, then go ahead and contact the authorities. If you don't hear from us in 24 hours, something has gone wrong and we need help but I wanted to let the thing play out.
3: Then, on the second day, the FARC leader announced that they had to move camp.
1: As we were moved to a different location and two days turned into three days, we couldn't help but think that things were not going well. People don't get taken by the FARC for a couple days. That's not what happens. People get taken for a month. People get taken for a year. Rescue operations are launched and people get killed. So at the same time when we were treated extremely well, we all had the stories in the back of our minds of people march through the jungle with these groups indefinitely. And many times it doesn't end well.
3: On the other hand, the rebels offered the explanation that the river had begun to rise and they just needed to move to higher ground, which did make sense given the amount of rain. In any case, it wasn't exactly like they had another option. And then, at the end of the third day, the FARC leader told the kayakers that they would have one small surprise for them the next morning. After that, as promised, they could go. The team climbed into their hammocks that night, hopeful that, just maybe, this whole situation could end peacefully.
1: That night just so happened to be The first cloudless night, the stars were super bright, super bright, especially for the tropics.
3: And at 9 or 10 o'clock that night, the camp awoke to a horrible sound, a plane.
1: And it was pretty weird because it was at night. The planes that service those villages, they don't fly at night. And then that plane circled and went over us again and circled again and went over us. And it was like, oh, my God, they know that we're here.
3: Regardless of how or if the pilot had known they were there, this was not good. If one of Ben's contacts had notified the authorities early, the FARC would know the team had betrayed them. But the alternative scenario, the possibility that whoever sent that plane didn't know the FARC band had hostages, that didn't seem likely to end well either.
1: Literally, I'm praying to myself that this plane just fucks off, goes away. Just like The last thing I want is for a bomb to drop, and even less for like a squadron to, like, parachute out of a plane and try to come rescue us? Like, how is that going to play out? And then all of a sudden, I hear them yelling at the top Apaga Luz, Apaga Luz, turn off the light, turn off the light. And it's just the worst feeling in the world, the most sickening feeling in the world, the first time that I really feel like this thing is completely spiraled out of control.
3: As all the various possibilities registered and the plane continued to circle above, Jessie flipped on her headlamp. The four boys made a hasty plan to throw themselves into the river, sure that the rebel band would take Jessie's light as an indication that the kayakers had summoned the plane. But by some miracle, 15 minutes later, the plane turned away, and the sound of the jungle drowned out the rumble of the engine as it disappeared from sight. The five kayakers lay sleepless in their hammocks until the first hint of gray tinted the sky. Then, they packed their boats and waited. When the sun rose, the kayakers were granted another miracle. The guard closest to Jessie believed that she had made an honest mistake. The leader of the FARC announced that they were free to go, but that they had to leave their electronics cameras, memory cards, satellite communicators, GPS devices, anything that could potentially give up their location. Ben managed to shove his memory cards down his pants, the boys managed to talk the rebels into letting them keep some camera lenses, and then they got in their boats and paddled off. Relieved to get on their way, but also a little sad as they said goodbye to these people who, all things considered, had treated them with a lot of kindness.
1: I was like on the verge of tears leaving there, and I was the last person to leave. There were seven in total, I believe. One of them was didn't even look like he was quite 18. The oldest maybe was in her late 30s, and I couldn't help but wish them the best and hope that they could return to their families someday, but with a pretty sickening feeling that they'd probably never get the opportunity. There was a very likely chance that the, they weren't going to be alive much longer.
3: The kayakers paddled back to the village with a little airstrip and chartered two planes. Without their navigation and communication devices, it didn't make sense to continue. Not to mention that they would surely encounter other rogue FARC groups further down the river.
1: There was only one sane thing to do, which was to get the heck out of there as quickly as possible. Because, um, yeah, it just felt like we had gotten super lucky. It definitely
2: got more news and attention than if we had successfully completed the river. But to me, having that kind of media is kind of embarrassing. Because it's like, well, should we have been there in the first place? I don't know. Was it a bad decision? Well, probably. And what is our place to go into a civil conflict like that?
3: Later, they would discover that Mauricio, Ben's contact in Colombia had put in an early call to the authorities, who sent that plane to look for them. After Mauricio got Ben's message, he talked to a friend who the FARC had taken hostage years earlier and held captive, chained to a tree for six months until he managed to escape, Rambo-style, into the jungle. That friend's advice? Don't wait. The crew returned to their respective homes. They never found out what happened to their friendly band of armed rebels. Ben and Jesse's romance faded with distance and different lives. Ben and Chris didn't talk at all for a few months after the trip. They both knew they still wanted to paddle together, strongly enough that less than a year later they traveled to Chile to kayak. But the situation in Colombia went unresolved.
1: There's definitely still a bit of an elephant in the room between the two of us. Some things still not completely said and hashed out from that trip.
3: Do you want to have that conversation with him?
1: Yeah. I would, yeah, at some point. And I think at some point we'll have to. Do you
3: think you'll talk to Ben about any of this?
1: I hope so. And to
2: me, we'll have to, to keep doing anything together. So... I definitely want to, and I'm ready to, and it's kind of embarrassing that we haven't.
3: (laughs) If I could somehow logistic it, would you be willing to sit down with me and Chris?
1: I thought maybe we could just talk to you, and then we wouldn't have to talk to each other. That would be...
3: (laughs) Yeah. But you both actually seem to want to talk to each other, Yeah, and just aren't doing that.
1: Yeah. No, I think that could work, for sure. Yeah, I think it would be good. When else are we going to sit down and talk to each other? We probably wouldn't, actually. We'd, We'd probably just try to sweep it under the table, I guess.
3: When did the creature tilts for you? Wheels his bloody flank to run you.
0: That was part one of Elephant in the Boat. Stay tuned for our next episode. We're going to dive into what happens when you get home from a trip like that and how do you move forward. Jen does a little therapy session too.
1: The Dirtbag Diaries is-
0: Made possible.
1: By pe- people that are good and kind.
0: At Patagonia.
1: At Patagonia.
0: Yep, it's Bring Your Work Kid Day here at Duck Tape Them Beer. Uh, the people of Patagonia have teamed up with Hopworks Urban Brewery to create Long Root Ale. It tastes great, and it's the first beer made with Kemza, a perennial grain grown using regenerative agricultural practices. Learn more and find out where to purchase a six-pack or a pint at PatagoniaProvisions.com. As always, additional support comes from Kuat Racks, a little company who believed they could build a better bike rack. Check out their lineup of sturdy, good-looking, easy-to-use roof racks and hitch racks and accessory at kuatracks.com. Do you have a kuat rack, Tab? Yeah. Yeah, do you like it? Yeah. Do you put your bike on it? Yeah. Uh, No. You don't? Oh, Dad's bike goes on it, huh?
1: No! Support.
0: Oh, it does. Support comes from Vossen, the Richmond based brewery committed to being one of the most sustainable breweries in the nation. Vossen makes thoughtful, data driven decisions to limit their environmental footprint on every aspect of their business, from beer to merchandise. Learn more at VossenBrewing.com. Do you drink Vossen beer? No! (laughs) I didn't think so. That's good to hear. Got a little ways to go. You, our audience, you also keep us thriving. Tep, thanks you. Say thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: There you go. To pledge your support, go to dirbagdiaries.com and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who's already donated. A huge thanks to Ben and Chris for their honesty and for sharing what we realized was not an easy story. The two of them are determined to keep paddling the world's most remote rivers together for a long time to come. Music today from Cloud9, The f Beat, Hopeless Jack, Kai Engel, Sergei Karamazov, and Vienna Ditto. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with direct permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and me, Fitz Cahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. Tep, what's your name? Teplin. And what are you listening to?
1: You're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.
0: Thanks for tuning in.
2: One day
1: the creature tilts for you
3: Wheels his bloody flank to run you through Oh mercy, Lord have mercy Lord have mercy on us all